Today on the Matt Wall Show, gangs of violent teenagers terrorize Chicago while the mayor worries about using appropriate and inoffensive language when referring to them. People can only take so much of this crime and violence before they start taking matters into their own hands. We'll talk about that. Also, Al Sharpton wonders what might have happened if Thomas Jefferson tried to overthrow the government. A fascinating hypothetical. The White House conspires with Facebook to suppress content from the Daily Wire. The media claims that Florida has now banned psychology classes and a porn star gives out marriage advice. It's as bad as you might expect. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. Well, if you want some positive news in the culture war, since Roe v. Wade was overturned, the left has lost their minds, making abortion their official sacrament. The pro-life efforts, which are now more important than ever, are booming. You heard that right. Despite the narrative, pro-lifers did not go away. They increased in number. In fact, as one of the largest pro-life organizations in the world, no one is in a better position than 40 Days for Life to end abortion in each state in a post-Roe America. 40 Days for Life is changing hearts and minds in the most blue pro-abortion states out there. They have a record number of locations since Roe was overturned, and they grew in both volunteers and locations. With about 1 million volunteers in 1,500 cities, they hold peaceful vigils outside abortion facilities. You can help them fight the ongoing legal battles by protecting free speech for their volunteers by giving a tax-deductible gift of any amount at 40daysforlife.com. That's 40daysforlife.com. Two years ago, a 20-year-old student at the University of Chicago named Max Lewis boarded a subway car on the city's green line. Uh, Lewis had just finished another day interning at an investment bank in downtown Chicago. He was on his way back to his apartment from work. Then without warning, a stray bullet tore through the subway's car window and uh, it hit Lewis in the neck. Doctors quickly determined that Max Lewis had been paralyzed from the neck down. He'd never be able to eat or walk again or uh, breathe on his own or, or, or anything like that. But Lewis could communicate with his eyes. And by blinking and using a letter board, he sent this message to his family. If I have to live like this, pull the plug. Please, seriously. Doctors took Max Lewis off of life support, and he died in the hospital shortly afterwards. Now, it's a horrifying story, tragic story, but it's not especially unusual in Chicago. That same weekend that uh, Max Lewis was shot in the neck, at least 100 other residents of Chicago were hit by gunfire. 18 died in one weekend. A few days later, Chicago's mayor at the time, Lori Lightfoot, gave an interview with CNN in Chicago's West Garfield Park neighborhood. She was surrounded by bodyguards for the whole interview, and Lori Lightfoot did not offer any sympathy for the family of Max Lewis, nor did she propose any solution to the city's rampant crime problem. Instead, in the interview, Lori Lightfoot made it clear who the real victim is in Chicago, and the victim is, of course, Lori Lightfoot. Quote, I'm a black woman, and I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. It's not okay that systemic racism, homophobia, and sexism still exist, but I'm going to play the cards that I'm dealt. Now, this pattern repeated in Chicago over and over and over again for years, until finally the residents of Chicago had enough of Lori Lightfoot's malevolence and incompetence. And earlier this year, Lightfoot became the first mayor of Chicago to lose re-election in 40 years in the city. Lori Lightfoot's replacement was a former social studies teacher named Brandon Johnson. Like every other Mayor that's been elected in Chicago since 1927, Brandon Johnson, is a Democrat. During the campaign, Johnson did not propose any serious solutions to the rampant crime problem in Chicago. Instead, he ran on a platform of anti-white racism and defunding the police department. Brandon Johnson took office just about two months ago. One of the first major tests of his new administration came on Sunday night, this past Sunday, when a mob began looting stores, fighting in public, and destroying property in the South Loop. Now, this is considered one of the nicer areas of the city for what it's worth. The bar's pretty low, admittedly, but it's one of the nicer areas. And here's what it looked like this weekend. Watch. Chaos outside a South Loop 7-Eleven Sunday night. The crowd seen here rushing out of the store with their arms full of items, some throwing them in the air. Inside the store, aisles were ravaged and ransacked. Police say now 40 people, mostly teens, are facing misdemeanor charges as a result of the so-called teen takeover. We haven't arrested people like that, but this group got so out of hand that we had no choice. Alvin Jackson saw the crowd at Roosevelt and Canal grow from a few dozen to a few hundred. Just a few kids, then it got thicker and thicker and thicker, and they kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. Alvin says at first, things appeared to be peaceful. Then a small group of teenagers started to block traffic and attempt to break into stores. Throwing the bottles, jumping on people's cars, uh, trying to start fights, and trying to run into stores and stuff like that. Police say once the crowd got out of hand, officers had no choice but to make arrests. Hmm. What a shame. Had to arrest him. You notice the one guy in the clip 
says, uh, well, we wouldn't normally arrest people like this. We had no choice. We had to. It's a tragedy. We had to arrest them. They had to suffer some minor consequences. What a terrible thing. Now, you hear the media there um, calling this a teen takeover, which is maybe the most innocuous possible term they could use. It sounds like a birthday party at the local swimming pool. In reality, as anyone could see, it was rioting. And, and by the way, not all the criminals were teens. Many of them were teens, but uh, certainly not all of them. At least one journalist didn't want to whitewash this complete breakdown of public safety in one of America's major cities. And this reporter asked Brandon Johnson what he was going to do about the mob violence in the South Loop. Brandon Johnson responded by attacking the reporter's choice of language. Watch. Mayor Johnson spent about an hour talking with the press. Yeah, Jim and Marie, and the most recent incident of teenagers and young adults converging and overwhelming in one area of the city was a big topic of conversation. It just happened this past weekend, and in that instance, they caused a lot of damage. The mayor responded this way, though, when someone characterized it as mob action. That's not appropriate. We're not talking about mob actions. I didn't say that. What, what I, okay, what I'm... Hold on a second, okay? Respectfully, these large gatherings, these large gatherings, just hold on a second, y'all. I promise you, we have time to talk. It's important that we speak of these dynamics in an appropriate way. This is not to obfuscate what is actually taking place. This was the scene near Roosevelt and Canal Sunday night. Groups looted a convenience store. Just impotence personified. It's the Lori Lightfoot approach. Don't blame the criminals. Blame the people who notice the criminals because they're the problem because they're using the wrong language. That's, that's the real issue here is the language. It's not the thing that's happening. It's the language we use to describe the thing that's happening. We see this a lot uh, on the left, of course. It's one of the hallmarks of leftism, in fact. It's this preoccupation with language. And every time they fixate on language, it's always to obfuscate the issue. They're not trying to be precise. In fact, it's, it's the opposite of being precise. They're trying to confuse as many people as possible. According to Johnson, the preferred term for what you just saw in Chicago is not mob violence or riot, but instead large gathering. Yes, a large gathering, you know, like a, like a concert or a Chick-fil-A drive-through, a, a large gathering like that. Is there a single person alive who thinks that's the most accurate, useful terminology in this situation? I mean, if any normal person witnessed this and then got home and told their family about it, would they describe, oh, I just saw a, uh, it was a large gathering of individuals. Any normal person says, I just saw a mob, a violent mob. It was crazy. But large gathering implies intentionally that nothing criminal occurred at all. A Thanksgiving dinner with 20 people can be described as a large gathering. But Johnson insists that um, that's the appropriate way to talk about what happened. And then he says, with no hint of irony whatsoever, quote, this is not to obfuscate what has actually taken place. But of course, that's the entire point of what he's doing. That's why people like Brandon Johnson claim they're redirecting funds from the police instead of saying they're, they're defunding them. It's why they use terms like gender-affirming care instead of talking about double mastectomies and sterilization. That's why they call the victims of abortion fetuses instead of babies. The objective of Johnson movement, Johnson's movement at every single turn is to obfuscate what's actually taking place. And what is taking place? Well, the destruction of the foundational elements of Western civilization. That's what's taking place. And that includes the nuclear family. It includes law and order. What's actually taking place, although you're not supposed to talk about it, is that major cities in this country are careening so quickly towards total disorder, we'll probably be seeing Koreans on rooftops soon. These are not isolated incidents that we're talking about. This is a pattern. Here's what Chicago looked like back in April, just a, a few months ago. Watch. Well, that's another large gathering for you. I mean, that's all it is, remember? A large gathering, like a, uh, like a, a church picnic. Now, Brandon Johnson, who was the mayor-elect at the time, responded to that violence you just saw with a written statement saying that it was not constructive to demonize youth who have otherwise been starved of opportunities in their own communities. 
Of course, he gets this exactly backwards. The, the, the job opportunities are leaving these communities because these people are making the communities unlivable. Okay, they aren't starved of opportunities. They are chasing the opportunities away. It's like if you see a bunch of people throwing food into a garbage can, you're probably not going to describe them as starving. It's not what starving people do. And if they do starve after throwing their food away, guess whose fault it is? Any one of those people could walk into the local convenience store and ask for a job, and they'd probably get it. Because all these kinds of places are, are, are themselves starving for help. But instead, they'd rather loot the place and rob from it, and that's their choice. At any rate, it's fair to conclude that uh, this is the prepared talking point of Johnson's administration in response to mob violence. Every time his city is besieged by rioters, he's going to lecture you for noticing. He's going to police your language. Back in April, Johnson was asked about his written statement on this subject, and um, here's how he defended it. Watch. Look, demonizing children is wrong. We have to keep them safe as well. Have you ever taught middle school? I have. Have you ever raised young people? Do you understand the risk that young people take just because they're young? Do you know that home plate is at the bottom of my stairs? I found that out when my son was sliding down those stairs trying to score. They're young. Sometimes they make silly decisions. They do. And so we have to make sure that we are investing to make sure that young people know that they are supported. Oh, they're, they're just children. They're just children making silly decisions. You know, a silly decision that a child makes is like uh, when my three-year-old tried to paint her face with ketchup. Like, that's a, that's a silly decision that, uh, that children make. Not this. But this is what he tells us. They're young. They make silly decisions like, you know, setting cars on fire, uh, assaulting police officers, um, randomly attacking pedestrians, that sort of thing. Now, you know, maybe you'd understand that, though, if you were a former middle school teacher like Brandon Johnson is. But you're not, so you can't possibly understand. It's clear that, like so many other Democrats, Johnson is totally unequipped to handle rampant crime in his city. Leftist ideology has, at this point, left reality and all of reality's concerns completely behind. These people are not living in the same universe as normal tax-paying Americans, let alone the same city. They hear about hundreds of shooting victims, and they start talking about homophobia. They see a mob of people robbing stores and setting cars on fire, and they, they say it's just, a, it's just silly. It's, it's a fun prank. It's like putting a, a whoopee cushion on someone's chair, you know, that sort of thing. That's not to confine the problem to Johnson or to Lori Lightfoot. This is now the default position of the Democratic Party in response to mob violence everywhere. We see it anywhere Democrats are in charge. If they're in a, an entrenched position of power, this is what you see. And it's leading to predictable results. This was Compton a few months ago. Watch. Chaos in Compton when a sideshow erupts into looting. This is at the intersection of Central and Alondra. A huge crowd taking part in a sideshow turned on a nearby gas station, smashing windows and doors until they got in and then looted the place. Thousands of dollars of goods were stolen. Deputies had been dispatched to the area but were unable to intervene as they were outnumbered. Only one arrest was made. A sideshow erupts into looting. A huge crowd taking part in a sideshow suddenly got out of control for no reason, according to Fox 11. Sounds so innocuous. Who could have anticipated that the sideshow would erupt into looting? It's as unpredictable as your neighbor's backyard barbecue erupting into a mass shooting. We also hear that kind of thing from the media, too. What are you going to do? You, 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 you couldn't possibly know. Well, as it happens, there's not much to do, apparently. As the anchor said, just one arrest was made. Imagine that. Of course, Chicago and Compton aren't the only towns with a George Soros-backed DA where these kinds of sideshows are common. We could show you similar videos out of Philadelphia and many other cities. In the case of Philly, a recent episode of mob violence was described by local media as a flash mob. And what did this flash mob do? Did they perform a coordinated dance routine or something? No, they waved guns around and injured police officers. Just an innocent flash mob, our media reports. Officials and media outlets can condone riots all they want. They can use whatever euphemisms they choose. But at some point, stakeholders, people who own shops and own homes in these communities, will fight back. And indeed, that's already happening. 
You may have seen this video from uh, the other day. It shows store owners in California beating a guy with a stick after he empties out their inventory of cigarettes. Here's, uh, here's what happened as the thief tried to leave. Watch. Hey, hey, don't, hey. Watch out, what? Ain't nothing you do, man. Don't do that. Don't do that, man. Don't do that. I have to admit, I'm a sucker for a heartwarming video. I uh, I could watch that all day. Um, I don't get all emotional about it, but it's just sometimes you see these kind of uplifting videos like that. Now, if you watch the whole thing, you'll notice that the narrator of that clip, the guy recording it, starts out on the side of the robber. He tells the store owners that they can't do anything because they'll get in trouble. Nothing you can do, the, the person says. And it's clear why he said that. We've all seen the reports of store employees being fired or arrested in some cases because they tried to stop shoplifter, shoplifters. And in this case, um, the shoplifter claimed that he had a gun. So there's even more reason for these store owners to stay back, but they don't. The store owners stepped up, regardless of whatever personal consequences they might suffer. And then, and this is the key moment, when the robber is subdued and he's getting his ass beat by a large stick, the narrator celebrates. He takes the side of the store owners. What does that tell us? It tells us that when strong people take action, everybody else gets the message very quickly. All it takes is some bravery, some decisive action for everybody else to fall in line. Do you ever notice that the riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin stopped after the night that Kyle Rittenhouse defended the local businesses and himself from the mob? There's a reason for that. But the leaders of the biggest cities in the country have no interest in defending their communities or taking any decisive action whatsoever. Instead, they're making excuses. Let's go back to the Brandon Johnson press conference from a few months ago, the one where he defends the mob. I mean, one of the press conferences where he defends the mob because he does this all the time. But watch what he says about the root causes of violence. You can make sure that, that, that we, we, we eradicate the root causes that lead to violence. And we also can make sure that there's support on the front line to make sure that we're preventing violence. It's a false choice. So Brandon Johnson wants to eradicate the root causes of violence. What are those root causes? He doesn't really say in that particular press conference, but you can probably guess the root causes for him are white supremacy and the police and so on. What Brandon Johnson doesn't reflect on is why all of this crime and destruction in our cities is not only happening, but why is it so pointless and arbitrary? Why are teenagers gathering to set cars on fire? What exactly are they gaining from that? Why are they gathering by the hundreds for no apparent reason to commit acts of violence? They're not stealing food. They're not doing anything for survival. In many cases, they're not even doing it for money. In some cases, they steal stuff and you just throw it on the ground. This is destruction for the sake of it. What Johnson and his party will never say because it's true is that we're seeing the results of multiple generations of children raised with essentially no moral formation, no parental guidance, no sense of purpose. They come from fatherless homes. They're taught by unionized employees who would rather be on vacation than in the classroom. They're given smartphones before they learn their multiplication tables, if they ever learn them, which most of them don't. And then when they commit serious crimes, the people in charge blame everyone but them. That's what's happening. When Lori Lightfoot says it's racist to criticize her, she's also saying it's racist to criticize the delinquents we see in these videos, but it's not. People who form mobs to destroy property are behaving like animals. They should go to prison for a long time. And unless we can say that, we will never address the root causes that Johnson claims to care about. It'll only get worse. More people will get beaten with sticks in 7-Elevens. More college students will get shot on the subway. Eventually, law-abiding citizens won't take it anymore. A critical mass of voters will demand the El Salvador solution, which is suspend civil liberties, round up the criminals, throw away the key. That's the way these things always go. The lesson of history on this point is very clear. People can only take so much. Now let's get to our five headlines. As many of you know, we have uh, been giving our dog rough greens for a while now, and, and we love it. Our dog has a ton more energy, is always running around with our kids. I'm serious. Our dog and our kids constantly have the zoomies. What? 
They're always running around and love playing fetch in the backyard. Dr. Dennis Black, the founder of Rough Greens, is focused on improving the health of every dog in America. Little did I know, before I got Rough Greens, dog food is dead food. Everyone knows nutrition isn't brown, it's green. Let Rough Greens boost your dog's food back to life. Rough Greens is a supplement that contains all the necessary vitamins that you need if you want to have the zoomies, plus minerals, probiotics, omega oils, digestive enzymes, and antibiotics. antioxidants that your dog needs. I know when I eat that stuff, I have the zoomies all day long. You don't have to go out and buy new dog food. Not that I'm eating dog food, whatever. You just sprinkle Rough Greens on their food every day. Dog owners everywhere are raving about Rough Greens. It supports healthy joints, improves bad breath, boosts energy levels, and so much more. We are what we eat, and that goes for dogs too. Dr. Dennis Black is so confident Rough Greens will improve your dog's health. He's offering my listeners a free Jumpstart trial bag so your dog can try it. A free Jumpstart trial bag can be at your door in just a few business days. Go to freeroughgreens.com slash Walsh or call 844-ROUGH-700. That's free, R-U-F-F, greens.com slash Walsh or call 844-ROUGH-700 today. So Donald Trump was arraigned yesterday on his 7,000th indictment, I think we're on now, and uh, not a whole lot to say about his arraignment. It all played out exactly as expected. But there was one amusing moment provided by MSNBC and specifically Al Sharpton, who was, uh, who was there to offer his analysis and his insights. Well, here's what, here was Sharpton's analysis of uh, everything that's going on. Listen. One day, our children's children will read American history. And can you imagine our reading that James Madison or J- Thomas Jefferson tried to overthrow the government so they could stay in power? That's what we're looking at. We're looking at American history. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if Thomas Jefferson tried to overthrow the government? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if Michael Jordan dunked a basketball? Can you imagine if uh, if Muhammad Ali was a boxer? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if the Titanic sank? Can you imagine what would have happened if that had occurred? I can't. I can't imagine. I. It's impossible to imagine. Al, you're right. Your point is very astute. You really have a way of putting things into perspective. You really do. Wow. Now, of course, Sharpton is a babbling idiot. He has the insight and intelligence of like a sea cucumber. But since he brought it up, you know, of course, we know that Thomas Jefferson, a little bit of American history for you kids, Thomas Jefferson did rebel against the government. That's how our country was formed. And, um, well, we know that. Al doesn't, apparently. But it does raise an interesting question, actually. I mean, inadvertently, he raises an interesting question that I, I think about a lot, which is, uh, how would Thomas Jefferson and the Founding Fathers respond to our government right now? And obviously the answer is they would violently overthrow it. Like, if if our Founding Fathers were on the scene right now, January 6th would be a, uh, would be, would be a walk in the park. It would be a picnic compared to what they would do. And they wouldn't even think about it. Like if Thomas Jefferson came back from the dead and looked at our government now, he would ter- he would turn to us, the citizens, and say, what are you people doing? You haven't invaded Washington yet and killed all these people? What are you waiting for? What's the problem here? What's the holdup, folks? I'm not advocating for that. I'm just telling you what Jefferson would say, okay? Just taxes alone, all right? Not even taking everything else into account, the giant behemoth central government, uh, which is by the way, far larger and more powerful and more invasive than the government that the founders rebelled against. Okay, They had significantly more freedom than we do now. Uh, it's not even close, actually. But just the taxes. Okay, the, These guys rebelled over a tax on tea, and it, it, there was more to it than that. But a tax on tea was, was a big part of it. So think about that, a tax on tea. Well, we have, we have taxes on tea. You know, you go buy a Snapple or something, it's going to be taxed. But we have a tax on literally everything. You, you wake up in the morning and you turn on your light and you're already getting taxed. Okay, you can't even get out of your bedroom before the taxes set in. Um, you, you go into your kitchen and you pour your taxed coffee into your taxed mug. Or if you prefer tea, that'll be taxed too. And you get in your car, which is taxed, and it's running on gasoline, which is taxed. And you get onto the highway that you pay a toll to even get on the highway in the first place. And you go to work, and you're getting taxed just to work. Your income is taxed before you even get a, get your hands on it. The government comes in and takes uh, takes whatever it wants and gives you the, the, the remainder, gives you the leftover. 
You know, they give you an allowance. The government gives you an allowance of your own income because they get their hands on it first through the magic of the withholding system. Um, Thomas Jefferson would not even consider putting up with this. It wouldn't be, there'd be nothing to talk about. He, he'd be calling for an armed rebellion and insisting that the IRS building be, be torched to the ground. That's what he would say. Like, that's, that's the lineage of our country. Those are, these are the men who founded our country. That's the attitude they had. They weren't shy about violence, obviously. And, uh, and they were much more... Um, uh, perhaps we would say liberal in its application. Liberal understood it, you know, in a different way than we are today. Just the fact of the matter. Um, and and you you can if you study that era of history and you look at the things that they were upset about and that they were complaining about, it's almost it's almost jarring in a, in a way when you if you if you haven't studied much about America's founding and the Revolutionary War and all that. And you go back and you read it now. It's almost from the modern perspective. You think, well, what was the problem? Really, you were upset about that. That that was the tyranny. That was the tyranny compared to this. We got locked in our homes for two years. Yeah, they, they went. They forced us all to wear muzzles. They're they're in, forcibly injected chemicals into our body. And you guys are upset about that. Means either that they they were incredibly petty, and our country was founded on pettiness. Or we have developed uh, an incredible tolerance for a level of tyranny and oppression that would have been unthinkable to the men who founded this country. So it's one of those two, and I think it's more the second. Al Sharpton brought it up, and I'm just, he's asking us to imagine, and so I'm imagining, and this is where my imaginings take me. All right, speaking of uh, tyranny, Daily Wire has this report. Shortly after taking office in January 2021, President Joe Biden's administration pressured Facebook to stifle the Daily Wire's reach on the platform and boost the reach of legacy media outlets, according to meeting notes recently turned over to Congress. The newly released documents, which were reviewed by the Daily Wire, show that Facebook repeatedly confirmed to the White House that it was working to re-engineer its platform in order to accomplish the administration's directives on suppressing content that clashed with its COVID uh, vaccine agenda. The meeting notes, first reported by Just the News, detailed discussions then White House Digital Director Rob Flaherty uh, had with Facebook executives in 2021, where the Biden staffer pressured the big tech company to moderate content related to COVID vaccines in order to enforce the administration's policy goals. During one meeting on April 14th, 2021, Flaherty asked Facebook about changing the algorithm to push content from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal over news from the Daily Wire and other polarizing entities. Quote, if you were to change the algorithm so that people were more likely to see uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, any authoritative news source over Daily Wire, Tommy Lahren, polarizing people, you wouldn't have a mechanism to check the material impact, he asked. Um, At the time of the meeting in April 2021 and in the months following, the Daily Wire was the leading publisher on Facebook getting more far more clicks and reactions than the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and every other conservative liberal news site. The meeting notes show the Biden administration telling Facebook that it was concerned about misinformation on the platform that caused many Americans to be hesitant about rolling up their sleeves and getting vaccinated. Now, it's funny because you still sometimes hear from some conservative critics of ours, of of the Daily Wire, that the Daily Wire is somehow part of the establishment, right, or whatever. You, You still see this. And uh, hey, one of the establishment, we're establishment shills over here at the Daily Wire. Meanwhile, there are meetings at the White House about how to reduce our reach. Okay, we have the White House conspiring against us. YouTube is demonetizing us. Fox News has blacklisted us. We have fact checkers, quote unquote, and media watchdogs, quote unquote, leftist activists, activist groups working around the clock to put out hit pieces, scare away advertisers, try to bankrupt us, on and on and on. We are, to put it mildly, not a part of this club. Okay, we don't want to be in it, and we certainly aren't invited. Uh, They hate us, and they hate us more than they hate most other outlets and people on the right. That's undeniable. It just is. And there's a reason. You know, I see all this as affirmation. Um, We hear so much about affirmation these days. It's important to be affirmed. Well, this, this, this is affirmation for me. I'm not happy about it. 
I mean, the plan to reduce our reach on Facebook, for example, was successful and uh, very successful. And we've taken a major, major financial hit because of it. I can tell you that. So I'm not happy about it. I, I prefer that it wasn't happening, but I know that it is happening because they fear us and they fear us because we're effective. You know, if, if you let us on a level playing field, if you let us simply have access to the audience, to our own audience, like if you let us people come to us and say, hey, I want more of this content. I'm a fan of this. I want to. And then you let us just access that audience. N- nothing special. We don't need any. Spe- we don't need you to prop us up in any special way. Just let us have access to our audience. That's it. And let the chips fall where they may. And if nobody's interested and, and we're irrelevant, then, then fine. Then we'll all go to business and we're going to have to find other, other jobs. That could happen too. But um, we know that if you do that, we dominate. You know, we win the argument. We, uh, we were the top publisher on Facebook for a reason. We can win hearts and minds. That's what we were doing. We are doing. Their only recourse is to stifle and silence us. It's all they have. That's all they have. But even that's not working. Because that's the thing that we also decide is that we're not going to let these bastards chase us away to some irrelevant corner of the internet, to some internet ghetto. We're going to stay right in the thick of it and we're going to fight this out. And that's what we're doing. And, uh, and you know, deck is stacked against us in a big way on a lot of these platforms. But uh, that's what we decided to do. We're going to continue to do it. And this, to me, is just more confirmation that, um, that it's an important fight to have. All right, what else? The media has found a new reason to panic over Florida's education curriculum. So we've, it's every, every few weeks, it's another thing. You're not going to believe what, what they're teaching down in Florida. In Florida, they're teaching that, that slavery was good, that it was good. Um, so it's always something. And here's the new thing that they are, that they're uh, freaking out about. Usually it's, it's made up. Sometimes though, it's not made up. Florida, uh, NBC news, Florida effectively banned advanced placement psychology classes in the state due to the course's content on sexual orientation and gender identity. The state's department of education informed the college board that it's AP psychology class is in violation of state law. Uh, according to the higher education nonprofit uh, said in a statement, Florida's parental rights and education act, or what critics have dubbed the don't say gay law. No, it's well, critics, yes, but what, what liars and propagandists have dubbed the don't say gay law restricts the instruction of sexual orientation and gender identity in the state's classrooms. The college board said in a statement, quote, the state's ban of this content removes choice from parents and students. Coming just days from the start of school, it derails the college readiness and affordability plans of tens of thousands of Florida students currently registered for AP psychology, one of the most popular AP classes in the state. The state's move to restrict AP psychology uh, comes several months after its decision to block AP African-American studies courses that were widely condemned by academics and civil rights activists. Uh, so now they care about school choice. Now, it's very, now educational choice is very important to these people. The College Board added that Florida will allow superintendents to offer the college-level psychology class for high schoolers if they exclude LGBTQ topics. However, the College Board argued that excluding the lessons, which it describes as teachings on uh, how sex and gender influence socialization and other aspects of development would censor college-level standards. Okay, so this then, then you know we get a few paragraphs into it as always, and we we start to see the real picture come into view a little bit, and that's what it is. So they're not Florida. The headline is going to be Florida bans AP psychology, and they they put that little qualifier effectively. And they think that that lets them off the hook, and so they can. It's it's not a lie anymore, but it is a lie. They haven't effectively banned it, or banned it, or sort of banned it. They they haven't. That has not happened. Now I say this as someone who, I honestly wouldn't care if they did ban it. Okay, psychology. The psychology. Uh, it, it's it's all such a mess at this point that if they did ban it, I think nothing would be lost. So the last thing that we need in the in the world right now is more psychologists. That's the last thing that we need. And so if it was banned and the effect is that uh, fewer kids are getting into psychology, then that, that, that makes the world a better place already. Okay. Um, so I wouldn't even care if they did. If they actually banned it outright, I'd say, okay, good. Yeah. Um, the psychology industry has been an absolute 
curse on mankind. It's just just nothing but destruction in its wake. Uh, but that's not what has happened. That is not what has happened here at all. Uh, it, you can still teach psychology. You can still have to have the psychology classes. Everything's fine. It's just that um, the gender ideology, if you want to indoctrinate kids into gender ideology, you can't do that. That's not going to be allowed. The college board comes back and says, well, then that means we can't teach psychology. And that only proves exactly my point about psychology. Because they're the ones who are saying, well, if we can't, you know, gender ideology is such a central piece of psychology now, of this, of the, of the, uh, of, you know, the psychology subject that we can't even teach it if you won't let us also teach that women have penises. And that's, that is precisely my criticism of psychology as a whole, as a subject in its current form, as an industry in its current form. It is totally ideologically captured. It is a mechanism, the entire thing, for left-wing ide- uh, 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 indoctrination. And they apparently agree because they're the ones who are saying, look, if we can't go out and say women have penises, that we should castrate little boys, that we should sterilize kids, it's very good to do. If we can't do that, if we can't say that, then we can't teach psychology because this is, is such a crucial element of the whole subject, according to them. And if that's true, all that proves is that, you, is that there is a, a major problem with the way that you're teaching psychology. Um, and of course, there is. So that's the way it always goes. You know, um, it, it's like it, it's no different from uh, Florida or any other state saying, hey, you can't um, you can't distribute pornography to students. And then we hear from the schools, well, then we can't even give them books. You've banned books. Well, the way they can't learn anything. Well, if we can't give them gay porn, then our whole, all of our lesson plans have now been destroyed. We do nothing. We can't do anything anymore. We can't even teach them two plus two. You've banned books. There's no books in the classroom because we can't give out gay porn. Well, if that's the case, then that would show that there is something deeply, deeply wrong with like your fundamental approach to education. If it interferes at all, in your mind, with, with, with teaching kids basic subjects, if you can't give them gay porn, well, that, that shows there's something wrong with you and with your approach. You should be able to teach kids just fine without giving them gay porn. Just like you should be able to teach kids psychology and AP-level psychology without getting into any of the gender ideology stuff. So I don't have a problem with psychology as a concept, as a concept, obviously, it's quite, not only have a problem with that, I find it quite interesting. Um, but with the way that it's taught and the way the whole uh, industry now is set up, is it, is it is all centered around these left-wing superstitions like, like gender ideology. Speaking of which, I wanted to play this clip before we get to the uh, comment section. This is a clip from, it's gone viral again. I, I believe this, is, this clip's uh, a few years old, actually. But this was, um, here we have a, gets a little confusing. So I believe this is a mother and daughter who are now pretending to be father and, no, it's a mother and son who are now pretending to be father and daughter. Let's watch never seen a family like this. We went from mother and son to father and daughter. That's right. This father and daughter used to be mother and son. 15-year-old Corey Mason, who loves mascara and lip gloss, was actually born a boy. I always wanted to be a girl. I would always, you know, go like this, you know, like this. I was always girly. And this is the woman who gave birth to Corey and four other kids. She never felt comfortable in her female body. I definitely felt like a boy. I definitely felt like I identified with boys, but I didn't realize it was possible that I could actually be one. <laughs> it wasn't until four years ago when the two watched a TV special on transgender teen activist Jazz Jennings that everything sure became clear. I said, wow, I'm just like her, I'm a girl trapped in a boy's body. Corey started taking puberty blockers at age 11 to stop facial hair growth and deepening of the voice. You know what that is? This is the moment Corey received her first dose of female hormones. She's overcome with emotion. <laughs> just 
seeing her courage and her bravery in the face of so much adversity just i think that's ultimately what gave me the courage. i think that's uh, more than most of us can stomach and so a few things there that that uh, jump out at you um and really it starts with the the young the young boy saying that he wanted to be a girl notice the language there you know and that's there, there two things wanted to be a girl and then uh, later on in the video, we hear that uh, he, he's, a, he's a girl trapped in a boy's body. Now, if you listen to the proponents of gender ideology, the so-called experts, if you go to the psychologists and the therapists and the academics and all these people, um, this is not the language they use. They're not going to say it like this. They're not going to say, well, some boys want to be girls, or sometimes a boy has a girl trapped in his body. They don't say that because they know it's sounds crazy, and it is crazy. And it also sounds, from a child, it sounds just childish. And it is childish. Um, it, and, and there's no way to justify it. Like, for one thing, wanted to be a boy, I mean, rather wanted to be a girl, well, that, that just, well, yeah, maybe you did, but that, that doesn't mean you are one. Because so, the claim they're making is that this actually is a girl, except that he's saying... I wanted to be one. Want to be one and I am one are two different things. In fact, the very fact that you want to be one shows that you aren't. Because if you are something, you don't sit around wishing that you are the thing that you are. No one does that. I, I, I haven't spent one second of my life sitting around wishing that I'm a man. I just am. I don't wish that I am. I am. I'm happy to be who I am, but I don't, I don't, I don't, wish to be. It's, it's, I don't have to wish on a, on, a, on a shooting star over this. I just am what I am. And so if, you, if you're desiring it and wanting it, then that shows that you don't have it, right? Um, and, then, and then the bit about a girl, girl trapped in a boy's body just doesn't make any sense. Like, what do you mean? Th that makes no sense. What does that actually mean? Do you mean you have the soul of a girl that somehow got stuck in a boy's body? Do you mean you have the Someone, some kind of brain transplant. Someone took the brain out of a girl and put it in your head and doesn't belong there. Like, what do you mean? Um, and from a child, it's like, yeah, this is the way that a child is going to think about it. We don't blame the child for that. The child is confused because he's a child. And you take any kid that age and you feed them this nonsense, they'll believe it. As I've pointed out many times, you, you tell young kids that there's a, a flying fat man that goes down their chimney with presents. They'll believe that. They'll believe anything. So we don't blame them for that. Um, but my point is that in the academic world, they, they try to come up with more complex ways of putting it. But this is really it. This is it. And for all the actual quote-unquote trans people, the quote-unquote trans-identified people, whether they're kids or adults, this is the way they think of it. This is the language they use. Okay, when they go to the doctor and ask for the, the drugs and ask for the double mastectomy, ask for the, the sterilization drugs, this is what they are saying. They're not using the language of academics. Okay, uh, they're not even talking about spectrums or anything else. They're going in and saying, "I feel like I'm a, a girl trapped in a boy body," or "I want to be a girl." That's what they are saying, because that's what the whole thing is. And when they get the drugs, they are getting the drugs from a doctor who is affirming that. That, oh, you want to be a girl, so we will make you one. Or yes, you really are a girl trapped in a boy's body. Makes no sense at all, but that's what they're affirming. So this is trans. So this is trans. What you just heard from the mouth of the of the the, the young boy there is uh, that's trans ideology. That's what it is. Strip away all the you know complicated language that you know. It's all just meant to mask this incredibly ridiculous ridiculous idea. And the second thing too, the second takeaway there from there is always, as you see the, uh, the woman who's trying to be a man and um, it just doesn't, you know, doesn't pass at all. Like you don't, you look like a lesbian woman. That's anyone who sees you would say that's a lesbian. That's, you're not even close. You're not, you're not even in the ballpark of looking like a man. And, um, you know, I think men who become become women, uh, it's you. You can almost always tell. It's very difficult for them to fool you. Uh, I think for women going the other way, it's even more difficult. Um, j just for them to present themselves as masculine, it just doesn't. It's it looks ridiculous. It just does, and it's not convincing. 
because you're not a man. And uh, like at the end of the day, all you did was just shave your hair. And you made your voice a little deeper, but there's a lot more to being a man than that. Let's get to the comment section. Who's bringing shopping cards back to the rival place? We become insane. Here in the sweet baby gang. Is that dark spot on your face still bothering you? Or what about the liver spots on your hands, neck, and chest? Well, they're bothering me if they're not bothering you anyway. So you can watch them disappear safely and quickly in three quick minutes. Introducing the GenuCell Dark Spot Corrector. Their three-step, three-minute dark spot luxury system does exactly what it sounds like. By using their crystals microdermabrasion, uh, and you don't put a pronunciation for that one, microdermabrasion before the dark spot corrector, and finishing with a touch of the collagen building GenuCell 15, you'll see the dark spots disappear before your very eyes instantly, smoothly, and luxuriously. But don't take my word for it. If you're not blown away with the results, you get 100% of your money back, no questions asked, free shipping, and free returns. All three products are included in GenuCell's most popular package for August, so you get your GenuCell bags and puffiness serum, also included for 70% off retail. So go to GenuCell.com slash Walsh, order the new dark spot corrector treatment system today, and say goodbye to those pesky spots tomorrow. That's GenuCell.com slash Walsh. Five Family says, first of all, depression is real. And yes, you really find yourself unable to do basic things you should, you know you should do. You may even try and you literally feel physically pain, so you stop. It sucks. Social media is amplifying this and is dangerous, and this needs to be ended. Um, well, I agree with your last statement that social media is making people depressed. Uh, the first part of it is not true. Um, you, you're not unable to do those basic things. You can do them. And this is actually an important, it's an important point. This should be the message to people who are saying they're depressed. This is actually the message. This is the self-empowering message. It's also true. You can, you're, you're laying around feeling, I can't do this. I can't get up. I can't go to work. I can't this and that. You absolutely can do it. You can, you just don't want to. That's the obstacle. It's like you really don't want to do these things that you should at some level want to do. Um, but you can. And we should get you to a point where you want to do them again. Like you should want to get out of bed in the morning and start your day. You should want to. Um, and if you don't want to, that's a problem. It, it's it, That's unhealthy to not want to. So we got to try to fix that. But... Even if you don't want to, you still should. Because you can do things you don't want to do. Anyone can. And being depressed is not an excuse. It's not an excuse to refuse to do things you don't want to do. That's weakness. It is. Whether you're depressed or not, refusing to do something that you should do and not doing it because you don't want to is weakness. Um, everyone has moments of weakness. That We're human beings. No one is perfectly uh, strong all the time. But you got to power through that. And the thing is that the more, as I said yesterday, the more you do things you don't want to do, but you know you should, uh, you, you'll find that after a while you'll, you'll start to want to do them. But sometimes you gotta you gotta force yourself into it. Um, and the the fake it till you make it is, I think, of all the cliches, of all the rhyming cliches that exist, that is maybe the wisest one of all. It's maybe the most, or certainly it's one of the, it's perhaps the most useful of all the rhyming cliches you can name. Fake it till you make it. Um, you don't feel like doing something. You don't want to do it. Just pretend that you do. Act like you do. And eventually, you'll, your, you'll, your feelings will trail behind. And there will be a little bit of a lag time. And during that lag time, it's more difficult. You know, and it's like pulling teeth. But sometimes you got to pull the teeth. Uh, yours Untruly says, Matt, I usually do agree with you, but I got to tell you, as a youth guidance counselor, depression really does put a mental block on not only cleaning your bedroom, but any daily activities such as hygiene, organization, tardiness, focus, memory. Makes you believe you're just physically unable to, don't remember to, or don't care enough about yourself to do the simplest attacks. Saying that there's some, nothing physically stopping you from doing things because of depression isn't the medical breakthrough you thought it was. Ha ha, because unlike the other diseases you mentioned, depression isn't a physical disease, it's a mental disease. But I don't blame you for it because many people who haven't suffered through these mental illnesses just simply can't ever understand it. Uh, I, it's all, you know, and there's, I think there's some more comments along these lines. Well, oh, you don't understand it. You've never been through it. You really think, you'd be hard-pressed to find any human being who doesn't understand depression. Um, almost every human has experienced being depressed for some length of time at some point in their life. Um, some people, most people I think are, are very acquainted, acquainted with it. And I know what you're going to say. That's, oh, it's different. It's different when it's clinical. Like, 
No, I think it's 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 part of the human condition. I, I just don't think that there's anyone you could possibly find on the planet who, when you tell them about the experience of being depressed, would say, oh yeah, I've never, that's never happened to me. Now, when you say something like, have you had depression? And you phrase it that way, you may find people on the planet who say, no, I never have. I don't know what that means. In fact, we went to we went to Kenya uh, and we talked to the, the tribe there for what is woman. That's one of the questions I asked them. It came up and, and they and it's a very interesting answer. They said, no, we don't have that. But that's because when we frame it like, when we take this part of the human condition, things people experience that are normal, and you, you, you make it seem like an illness that you have, that concept doesn't make sense to a lot of people outside of the Western bubble. They just don't think of it that way. But if you were to say to these people, uh, have you ever been just really, really, really sad and down and you didn't feel like doing the things that you should want to do? And uh, have you been in despair? That sort of thing. Anyone, anywhere will say, yes, I've experienced that. Yes. Um, and this should not be pointing out that everyone has experienced despair and that it's a, it's a, it's a part of the human condition. If you take this as minimizing your own experience with it, like you're in some kind of competition, well, that's your own fault. It should be a comforting thought to realize that this is a normal, you're not, you're not a freak of nature, you know, because you experience this, that it is a normal part of the human condition. Doesn't mean it's not serious, doesn't mean that it's not a problem, um, but it is normal. And that should be a comforting thought. I think the fact that people aren't comforted by it, it just shows that there's this weird kind of like competitive nature where people suffer and they need to feel like, no, I'm suffering in a way you can, you don't understand this. This is way worse than you ever have. Um, that attitude itself is a problem. Um, and on the same note here, this is from Lee, says, Matt gets a lot of things right about, uh, gets a lot of things right about, okay, I think Matt gets a lot of things right, including things about ADHD, because there's a few things wrong about it, too. I don't think Matt has ever met a six-year-old with ADHD. Maybe he has. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. Yeah, once again, uh, well, if you don't agree with me, if you, this is, the, this is the, the general attitude. If I don't agree with the way people talk about and categorize things like ADHD and depression, anxiety, it can only be because I have no familiarity with them at all. The possibility that maybe I am familiar and I just have a different opinion about it and I see it differently and I have a different perspective, it's like unthinkable to people. They can't even imagine that anyone could have could possibly have a different perspective on these things. But, well, you might not be able to imagine it, but you should, just like Al Sharpton can't imagine Thomas Jefferson overthrowing a government... Uh, you, you need to, to imagine it because actually I'm very familiar. I have six kids. Okay, I have four boys. You really think I've never, I, I am totally flabbergasted by the idea of having kids who can't sit still, can't pay attention. It's very hard to teach them things. You think I haven't experienced that? I got news for you, Lee. I know more about it than you do. Okay, I know more about it than most people actually. In, 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 in this world, it's relatively rare to find people with uh, six kids or more. So I'm, we're in a little bit of rare company here. So I, I, I know about it. I do. Um, and I've had now, uh, uh, I have four boys. I have two boys that have gone through the age of six. Both of them could easily be diagnosed with ADHD if I wanted to. I, I, we could go to the doctor. We can get them on Ritalin tomorrow if we wanted to. It would not be a problem. Um, Check. Look at all the symptoms. Check. 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 Write down. Write down the uh, the list. But I will not do that. I will not do it. All of our doctors know that. All it just anyone around me knows that's a non-starter. We are not putting these kids on drugs. It's not going to happen. Period. I don't believe in it. Um, and I believe that uh, that for a child to have a lot of energy and to have trouble focusing and to be distracted, especially when. Even our kids, you know, we, we don't have our kids on smartphones. We, we limit the amount of digital uh, time they spend with screens and stuff like that. But still, even then, they, they, they live in a culture just r ripe with distraction all the time. And I think to treat them like they're sick because of it is just wrong. And I will not do it. And um, if that means that things become more difficult and it be kind of annoying sometimes to have boys that are bouncing off the walls and all that, and it's, it could be more difficult to teach, teach them concepts and we got to spend more time with them and all, you know, it makes our life more difficult. Well, then so be it. Um, that's my perspective. Despite the lackluster economy, the Daily Wire is thriving. Not only that, we are hiring. We're currently looking for a production assistant for, to join our fast-growing production department. Believe it or not, this show does not run by itself. 
despite how it may seem. Behind the scenes, you'll find our production team hard at work. Our production assistants are key components to a successful show, and we are currently looking to add another PA to our team. If you have previous production experience, thrive in a fast-paced, high-demand environment. We're looking to grow your career in the, uh, in the field of production. Whatever the case, apply on our career page today. The position is based here in Nashville, Tennessee. If you're interested in joining our team, visit dailywire.com careers. That's dailywire.com careers today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. The former porn star Maya Khalifa has, uh, is it me or Maya? Let's go with Mia. Let's go with Maya. The former porn star Maya Khalifa has gone viral this week with some marriage advice that she offered to her Instagram followers. Now, you wouldn't necessarily expect great marriage advice from somebody like this. Uh, the world of cyber prostitutes is not revered for its marital wisdom or any other kind of wisdom. So you're probably thinking, what worthwhile advice could this former porn star possibly have to offer? Well, I can say that life is full of surprises. In general, I mean, but not in this case. The advice is god-awful, just like you'd expect. Here it is. Oh, we're comparing stats. Baby girl doesn't know that I am Tom Brady at this game. Married at 18, divorced at 21. Second marriage. Married at 25, divorced at 28. Third engagement. Engaged at 29, ended it at 30, but I kept the ring. I'm still keeping Tom Brady on his toes. We should not be afraid to leave these men. We are not stuck with these people. Marriage is not a sanctimonious thing. It is, it is paperwork. It's something, it's, it's, it's a commitment you make to someone. But if you feel like you're not getting anything from that commitment and you're trying, you gotta go, you gotta go, you have to go. I know it's difficult to fill out paperwork and to make appointments and to do all of these things, but this is your life. Do you want to be stuck with someone? It's period. This is what happens when women try to make sports analogies. Uh, Maya apparently doesn't understand that Tom Brady has seven Super Bowl rings because he was victorious in seven Super Bowls. He won a lot. That's why he has the rings. But Maya is a loser, a failure. She keeps failing at marriage, um, and which makes her, if anything, the anti-Tom Brady of the marriage game. In fact, even that gives her too much credit, you know, because, I mean, Tom Brady, that, that would be like, you know, Tom Brady did make it to, it's like if he, if he lost a bunch of Super Bowls or something. But no, she's, she's more of, a, of an NFL washout, a draft bust. She's the, uh, the, the Jamarcus Russell of marriage. She's the Johnny Manziel of matrimony. You get the idea. This only goes to show why I have put certain parameters in place for anyone who wants to dispense any marriage tips at all. Now, according to my rules, which don't have the force of law behind them, but should, you are not allowed to give any advice on this topic unless you have been married for at least 10 years and you have at least one kid. Um, from there, the longer you've been in it and the more kids you have, the more seriously your advice can be taken. Here's one area where trust the experts really does apply, except that the experts don't have to have any academic credentials. Their resumes don't matter. All that matters is that they've actually done the thing and they've experienced the challenges of marriage and family life and they've learned how to navigate them successfully. Taking advice from Maya Khalifa would be like uh, having a driving instructor who's been behind the wheel three times and totaled the car all three times. Obviously, that would be a bad idea. Now, there's probably not much point in responding point by point to the horrible guidance that Maya is offering uh, to women here, she, she's correct in, about one thing, which is that marriage is not a sanctimonious thing, but she's only correct because she's semi-literate, so this was accidental. Marriage is, on the other hand, a sacred thing. It's a covenant. Saying it's just paperwork is like saying that the home you live in is just paperwork. It doesn't make any sense. You know, yes, you sign some paperwork as part of the process of buying a home, for example, uh, it, but doesn't mean that the home itself is not paperwork. And you sign paperwork as part of the process of legally binding yourself to your spouse in marriage. But the marriage itself is not a piece of paper. My kids all got birth certificates when they were born. But my kids are not birth certificates. Okay, Marriage is the same way. It is a living, breathing, vibrant thing, a union, a commitment. Yes. But if, as Maya says... That commitment is null and void the moment you feel that you aren't getting anything out of it, then there's no commitment. This is a mercenary arrangement then. 
Okay, it's it's like um, it's like if you if you built a roof that collapsed under the weight of a slight drizzle. The whole point of the roof is to shelter you from the elements. If it can't withstand any of the elements, then the roof was a sham to begin with. It may as well have not existed. Most likely, if you feel that you aren't getting anything out of your marriage, especially if you feel this way and you just got married like a week ago or however long it was in Maya's case, it's a very good indication that you're looking for the wrong things. You're expecting the wrong things from it. It's like claiming that your oven is broken because it won't wash your dishes. That's not what an oven is designed to do. The oven isn't broken. Your expectations for the oven are simply insane. For marriage, you cannot expect, as Maya and so many women like her expect, that it'll be some kind of machine that exists to constantly make you personally happy all the time and make your life easier and more fun all the time and keep you entertained and enraptured at all times. This is what the Maya Khalifas of the world expect of marriage. It is, it is indeed what they expect of everything and everyone in life. Um, and when they don't get it, when the thing does not provide them immediate and superficial happiness on a silver platter whenever they ring the bell, then they declare that the thing must be defective, and they are morally justified in smashing it to pieces no matter who is hurt in the process. Again, these narcissists approach all of life this way, so it's no surprise that they bring this same sense of entitlement into their marriages. And it's even less surprised that this entitlement has the same effect on their marriages that it does on all other aspects and, and areas of their life by making them and everyone around them miserable and ensuring that they will fail at everything that they half-heartedly attempt to do. Marriage is supposed to be a deep source of fulfillment and purpose and joy. But like any other worthwhile thing, it requires work and sacrifice. You have to, you have to dig deep into the earth to find diamonds. There's no use complaining that they don't fall out of the sky. Besides, if they did, we'd all be killed anyway. The point is that the good and beautiful things in life require work, and it's just as simple as that. You have to dig for them. In the context of marriage, the digging doesn't need to be backbreaking or terribly strenuous. It's not like marriage is constant drudgery with moments of happiness thrown in. That's not the point. Most of the work is just like living your everyday life, meeting the normal types of challenges that come, you know, that come your way. The kinds of challenges that you would have to face if you were alone, only now you have somebody by your side. So in many cases, life challenges can be quite a bit easier when you're married for this reason. But you cannot expect that the other person lives simply to make you happy every second of the day as if they have no life or identity of their own and as if the marriage is your, your plaything which exists for your personal entertainment. It is virtually guaranteed that this is the attitude a person brought into marriage if they, if they get a divorced a year later or two years later. Like, we know this is someone who didn't want a spouse. She wanted a video game character that she could control for her amusement. Now, this is all pre probably pretty obvious. Newsflash, if you're shallow, shallow and selfish, there's a good chance your marriage won't succeed. Maybe not breaking news for most people, but I think the real thing to be learned from Maya's video, if anything at all can be learned from it, is that this is why so many young men are terrified to get married. They have a deep and certainly not entirely unjustified fear that they'll end up in a marriage with a woman like Maya Khalifa. The young man who's afraid to, to, of marriage is afraid of it because he doesn't want to give his heart and his life to a woman who then treats this sacred union like a piece of paper that she can throw in the shredder the moment that she feels a little bit bored. Given that the majority of divorces are initiated by women and that very often their reasons are intensely selfish like this, this fear is understandable. Maya Khalifa is obviously a terrible person, an awful woman, a sociopath who professes her love to a man only to casually stab him in the back and treat their, their vows like a joke. And she is far from the only woman of this type lurking out there. And this is a source of great anxiety for young men who otherwise long to become husbands and fathers. Frankly, it should be a source of, uh, of worry for them. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. These types of women, if you're a man, if you're a young man, you got you to just trust me on this. These types of women are easy to spot, okay? You can see the Maya Khalifas of the world from a mile away. And, and I don't just mean because she's a porn star. I mean a, a shallow, selfish woman who is concerned for no one's happiness but her own is very obvious most of the time. You should be able to pick up on this in one conversation, let alone a date if you get a whole date with someone and you're talking to them for, you know, a couple hours, you should be able to tell all this real quickly. 
It is very unlikely that an awful, self-centered, bimbo narcissist will be able to present herself as some kind of high-character woman. Much less will she be able to keep up the act through the entire process of dating and engagement. Now, there are a few masters of disguise out there, but most of them wear their awfulness on their sleeve because it's the only way they know how to be. And they also aren't aware of how awful they are, so they don't know that they should hide it. So then how do men end up with, with these kinds of women? How, how did three different men propose to Maya Khalifa? Well, that's no mystery either. They become enamored with other aspects of the woman. They allow those other aspects to overshadow the glaring character defects that they definitely do see. And they go out and they buy the ring against their better judgment. So use better judgment. There are plenty of good women in the world, just as there are plenty of good men. If you see a Maya Khalifa walking around out there, just keep going. Keep searching. She's not worth the trouble. Not even close. And that is why Maya Khalifa and, frankly, the men who were dumb enough to propose to her are all today canceled. And that'll do it for the show today and this week. Have a great weekend. Talk to you on Monday. Godspeed.